ladies and gentlemen, we are back. Week 8, Deuteronomy chapter 20 through Joshua 9. I'm in the booth with Rev. Talk to me. <laughs> I think there's only a certain demographic of people in our church that know me as Rev. Mm. And it's largely because of you. Look, man, just uh, paying homage where homage is due. <laughs> I worked really hard when I first came here. People are like, what should we call you? Like, how about Brent? It, <laughs> <laughs> it went from pastor to Brent to Rev. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, man, we're we're grinding through. I was, th- I mean, we're getting close to like, in a, in several weeks, our church will have read through almost a quarter of the Bible, which is pretty crazy. Well, in all of the Torah or the first five yeah, books, all yeah. of the law. Yeah. After this upcoming week, they'll have read through the 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 whole Torah. So, uh, yeah, recapping kind of like what we, what we have been doing. We spent a lot of time this last episode talking about the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, about how obedience is interconnected with our love for God and how uh, Israel was commanded to stir their affections to love God by meditating on the Word of God everywhere that they went and teaching it to their children and in their house and... Um, yeah, we also even got to see a little bit of a preview uh, about this is the second giving of the law. It's Moses' last charge to Israel before they're going into the promised land. You know, we, we've talked about the Messiah that's going to come from the line of Judah, this kingly ruler. We got a little bit more of a description of what that king will look like in Deuteronomy 17. Uh, you know, it's not supposed to be somebody that's acquiring many wives. They're not supposed to... Uh, have uh, many possessions of, of gold and silver or acquire many horses, but they're supposed to be devoted to uh, the word of God. So we, we kind of have a picture of what the the king is supposed to look like. And now this week we're going to finish the Torah. Uh, we're going to finish the rest of Deuteronomy and then go into uh, Joshua as Israel enters into uh, the promised land, uh, which is pretty crazy. We're, we're kind of seeing a pretty significant end to the life of Moses that's been largely one of the bigger uh, character developments or people that we've been you know following and observing throughout throughout the Torah so far and it's looking like somebody else is going to take the torch and uh, lead them into the promised land so has there I mean we've talked I'm putting you on the spot here we didn't prep for this one at all okay has there been I mean, you, you, we've talked about that outline in Genesis 15 for the Torah. Mm-hmm. They're starting Joshua. Is there something like that for the rest of the I don't the know Old that Testament? there's a scripture or like a, you know, it's like a, you know, a promise, like the Abrahamic promise or covenant that tracks through. But I think actually this is if those of you that may be listening that were a part or are a part of the biblical training initiative, <clears throat> you've watched uh the big picture it's on the one of the one of the lectures that sh- that they've watched and it outlines uh sort of how the first five books the law are informational in the sense that uh, or instructional like these are the commands this is what god is calling you to and then as you trans uh transfer into joshua it's traditionally are called historical books, mm-hmm. but basically you're like moving the storyline forward. 
So like when you get to the prophets, that's actually not happening. You know, they're they're speaking into the events that are going on in these books that we're, you know, getting ready to enter into. But it's helpful to think about like so in these this next section of the Old Testament, the history is moving forward, the storyline is moving forward, and it's all kind of hinging on how is the nation or the leader of the nation acting out or not acting out the commands and instructions of the law. Okay. So when that's happening, things are going well. When that's not happening, that's when things go poorly. Hmm. You know, and so it's sort of like, and and you see the character of the leader being so important as the leader goes, so the country goes, and so the culture kind of goes. And so... I think that's one helpful way to look at it is these next these next books are advancing the storyline they're 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 moving the history forward but they're really looking back on or the point of the scripture is how are they living out or not living out those first 5 books and then you know the, the last section of the old testament you know the psalms and a lot of the prophets that will be even more of an explicit kind of evaluation of their obedience. Yeah. More so their disobedience. Yeah, totally. But the difference is those books, they're not moving the storyline further. They're going back. They're they're, they're examining what's... Well, they're talking about... They're like speaking into these times that that we're we're talking about here. So it's not like, okay, you get to the next, you know, the the final third of the Old Testament and it's like moving the storyline further mm-hmm. actually it's not these yeah. books are sort of the whole the yeah. whole deal for the so the storyline chronologically basically stops at second chronicles yeah it, it, it first and second kings and first and second chronicles it kind of stops there and for the most i mean generally speaking the rest of the books are speaking into that era Correct. of joshua to you know it's speaking approximately there yeah okay now that's helpful the how how is the Torah either obeyed or disobeyed in the future books? So the other, the other like big picture things we've been, we've been focusing in on is, uh, is God's people. And again, we talked about this, this lineage, this, this King we're looking for. And Moses wasn't from the tribe of Judah, but you know, interestingly, there is a character that people or a, a person that people will get exposed to in the beginning of Joshua that does have a connection to the lineage of God's people. Do you want to, do you want to talk about that at all? Well, yeah, when you get into right off the bat in Joshua 2 as they're, you know, this first the spies are kind of heading into the land, this prostitute Rahab is there and um, she is this sympathetic figure and actually she says in a in a demonstration of faith, really, hey, we we've heard. We've heard what your God has done. And so she gets on board and, you know, you obviously people will read about it this week, but the bigger picture is, you know, moving way, way, way forward. Mm -hmm. She ends up in the lineage of Jesus. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. So she's not explicitly mentioned in the, yeah, in, in the, in the book of Ruth, but Later, you see who she ends up marrying and how that lineage ends up contributing to uh, 
yeah, ends up contributing to the the, the eventual Messiah. So there's kind of a mission focus yeah. there, like you know God's heart for mm-hmm. the nations. There's also a grace focus there, like this is a prostitute, mm-hmm. and God, yeah, you know, chooses to redeem her life, yeah, uh, and she becomes a a worshiper of Yahweh and and becomes part of the line of the Messiah. It's crazy, and she's. Uh, Jaden and I were actually looking at double checking this today. She's the only woman mentioned in Hebrews 11. Mm. The, I mean, Abraham and it, it mentioned Sarah, Sarah briefly, but yeah. like as the, as the example, the next in the last one that uh, is mentioned, Rahab who it, hid the spies. Yeah. Rah- Rahab, yeah. which is pretty crazy. Like it, yeah. it kind of goes through this long list of male Jews yeah. and it ends <laughs> on a female prostitute, you know, Gentile, pa- Canaanite, yeah, Canaanite, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a, it's pretty remarkable to think about how God unfolds, uh, and she's proactively seeking peace with Israel because there's a faith in Yahweh that's clearly commended all throughout Scripture. And it's I think it's important to notice that it's not. I mean, we're going to get into a lot a lot of this more later of kind of the ethics of this, but it it's not like. Israel's coming on to these people and they're unsuspecting and they have no idea who God is Mm -hmm. and they have no idea of what he's done. Um, Because I think that's that's a really important piece for her to say, hey, I've heard about this. Mm -hmm. I've heard about your God. Yeah. And the way that she's rescued or rather that she's uh, protected is very Passover like, you know. There's the the scarlet cord right. hanging in the window. Yep. This is a house instructed to the Israelites. You and your family stay in here. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, there's there's even some atonement kind of mm-hmm. uh, imagery looking back and looking ahead in the future. And that's an that's that's a non-Jew, a Canaanite that's beneficiary uh, is a beneficiary of that uh, provision of grace. So there's there's a lot of deep thoughts there. And as we get into Ruth, and obviously even in the New Testament, Rahab still sticks around, which is really, uh, really encouraging. Now, the other thing that is interesting is that when we talk about the dwelling place of God, obviously this is a huge turning point in the book because yeah. since Genesis, you know, or some of the early chapters of Genesis, God has been promising this land mm-hmm. that he will go with them and that uh, this is a land that, Abraham's offspring are going to inherit to live in a covenantal relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. The, uh, I had a seminary professor point this out about how the, 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 there, there seems to be uh, the garden of Eden like language in the, in the new promised land. So for example, as you, See in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are kicked out uh, of the Garden of Eden and they're, they're driven out, they're driven out from the east. Sorry, they're driven out uh, to, the, to the east, out of the Garden of Eden. So the entrance to the Garden of Eden is from the east. And then later on, when we're given the, the instructions for the tabernacle in the book of Numbers, the entrance to the tabernacle is from the east. Mm. And then again, a, a third time that when you see Israel, they're leaving the city of Shittim just to the east of the promised land. So they're entering in over the Jordan River from the east into this promised land where they're going to be instructed to be fruitful and to be and to multiply. Mm. I mean, this is it's all connected that this is meant to kind of be a new Eden live in the and not to mention there the book of Deuteronomy readers will see that the book of Deuteronomy ends with this idea of 
a blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience, yep. which is very similar to Genesis 1 and 2. It mm-hmm. says that, mm-hmm. hey, live with me and you'll be blessed. And if you disobey me, you will die. Or you'll be exiled. Yeah. Which ends up happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it's cool, man. Like the, It's crazy to think that there was... I mean, this is a huge uh, transition as we're seeing them enter into the promised land. And now it's kind of like we're waiting for the sequel to see like that outline you mentioned, will they abide by the Torah, mm-hmm. you know, and what will end up happening uh, in, in the promised land? Anything else you'd say, big picture wise, towards the no. lineage or the place of God? No, I think we we should probably just get right to the, you know, what we'll call the elephant in the room mm-hmm. in terms of the ethical nature of the conquest. Because I think people that are reading this for the first time, and quite frankly, Myself, as I'm reading it for, you know, not the first time, many, many times, there's part of this that's just, you know, it, it's it's tough. And you try to wrestle through, okay, what is going on here in these battles? And um, what? how do we think about the ethics of this? And, uh, yeah, I think, I think even... Post nine eleven, that this is probably ta- you know registers in our mind even more. Like, are they just invading this other these other people's land and you know taking it over, and then all of the you know bloodshed and all those kind of things? So, I think that's probably where we should spend a good bit of yeah. good bit of our time here. Yeah, and I, you know. There's obviously a temptation here that you can take a couple different ra- ways as people are reading through this, you know. On on one hand, someone could just say, ah, this is a distant thing. I don't really think of, I'm not really going to press into this as this truth. Uh, but probably the, the other temptation is to really lean in and kind of ask the questions. And there, w- what's, uh, I mean... You, you had talked about this in a sermon several weeks ago, but doubt, uh, you know, when it's uh, doubt and faith are not necessarily opposed to one another. Mm-hmm. Unless faith, in, you know, unless someone is saying, I don't want to grow mm-hmm. in, in my faith mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And so th- this is a, a healthy discipline to kind of step into and ask questions about a section of scripture that frankly we have questions about sure you know and to kind of wrestle through so brent had actually um i mean was this several years ago that you said that you were kind of doing more research a little bit yeah uh and so brent actually read an article um found an article that kind of succinctly summarizes uh some context to help us under, better understand the book of Joshua and particularly these, the conquests. So I'll actually include that in the, in the show notes. So we're largely, largely drawing on this article. Why did God command the invasion of Canaan in the book of Joshua uh, by Andy Patton? So we'll, you'll, you can follow it on there, but we're just going to talk uh, briefly about that to try to kind of help equip all of uh, anyone who's reading the old Testament, especially for the first time engages some of these uh, questions or even challenges. So, Brent, we can just kind of banter about some of those points. Well, I think one of the things that we need to start with is understanding our own context as well. I mean, we live in, I mean, you and I, meaning not necessarily everyone that would listen to this, but you and I live, 
have have lived in a time that's probably the most and in a place that's the most lavish you know uh, and and we haven't seen a lot of firsthand atrocities mm-hmm. you know in in our own you know geographic location yep. we, we just haven't seen a ton of that compared to other generations and certainly compared to other places in the world and so i i think there's probably global christians that struggle less with this because they've seen so much uh demonic injustice even religious motivated wickedness um so i think it it, we have to think about our own context and part of the reason why we wrestle with this so much is because we we envision something Mm -hmm. very different and i know I know global Christians have said, you know, like our question oftentimes is if God is loving, how could he allow these things or even command these things where I know oftentimes global Christians would say for God to be loving, Mm -hmm. he, he would have to do these things. He, he would have to kind of exercise this warrior nature of his justice. And maybe even to a point of doubt, you know, saying, where is God that He yeah. hasn't executed just yeah. you know, judgment on on, yeah. on these yeah. these yeah. groups? Yeah. So I think that's a, a an important place to start is to think about you know our own cultural context, um, but then also to see that it was back in Deuteronomy when when the Lord actually says to the people to people of Israel, "I'm not giving you this land because you're so great." Uh, I believe it's Deuteronomy nine verse five. Yeah, it's not, and that that's repeated actually throughout the Old Testament in several other places, uh, where he says, "You're not, you're not going into and receiving this land because you're you're some special, awesome, righteous people, or because you're stronger, better, whatever." One of the main reasons he says, though, is to because it's wicked. There's just wicked structural systems in these places. Um, which included all kinds of wicked sexual stuff, child sacrificing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the 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 worship systems there were wicked, and so part of this is a judgment of cleansing the land, not necessarily of the people, mm-hmm. but of the practices, yeah. the worship practices, idolatrous yeah. wickedness. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. Another thing to keep in mind is that uh, th- that there there was instructions in the Torah in Deuteronomy, you know, the first chapter that people will read this week in verse ten of Deuteronomy chapter twenty. When you draw near a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as if, uh, you know. There, that that was always on the table as an option when they were going into a land, and and clearly Rahab was, I was an say, example. Rahab yeah. is a perfect example of someone that's proactively seeking. Yeah, you know, and and that's that even says something. You know, Rahab says that her and everybody knows that this is happening yeah. in the book of Joshua, and yet Rahab is the only person that's proactively seeking justice or is seeking uh you know, peace shelter and she's only asking it for her and her family, Mm. you know? So you wonder, were they all on the same page about how to respond to this? You know, you would think that if everyone knew we could proactively, or rather if everyone, um, 
was on the same page with Rahab of trusting in Yahweh as God, they would have sought peace from them without, you know, fighting. Right. But it's clear that they were reluctant to do so or, or yeah, who knows? So how about some of the cities that they're going into? I, I know that you've mentioned that before that sometimes we kind of think of these as like, it's again, the, the society we live in, we, we think of like, it's a library or, a, a yeah, or like center, a, you yeah, know, you know kind of like a civilian. suburban Columbus city that, all of a sudden somebody's just, you know, desecrating or whatever, you know. Um, and I think oftentimes most of these places are, are more like military outposts. Um, and so that those conquests, I think we need to th- see it more in terms of like that military language. Um, I mean, we've heard about that through wars in our generations. Again, people from you know, older generations are, are going to be a lot more familiar with that. But these main hubs that are like strongholds, military strongholds, that if you know, if you, if you deal with that, then you can, you can kind of move forward and, and uh, advance, so to speak. So I think that is important as well to, to hear these uh, cities as not, like you said, uh, libraries and schools and you know whatever but but more like military strongholds yeah the other thing to think through is you know similar to how we speak today we use various idioms and expressions to communicate something metaphorically as opposed to literally you know so if we said the uh you know the ohio state buckeyes destroyed the iowa hawkeyes could happen (laughs) (laughs) i was trying to think of a team that hits close to home yeah Saturday. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, clearly there we're not saying that Ohio State eliminated them from the face of the earth or their yeah. existence. Yeah. You know, that there was basically some of that language is to communicate because clearly Rahab and there's other Canaanite cities that don't get destroyed. Uh, it, it's meant to communicate that there was a um, complete victory. A complete victory. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. Or yeah. it was a dismantling of an ungodly, pre- uh, you know, culture. Yeah. Th- things like that. Yeah. So, but I think it is important for us to realize that none of those caveats necessarily change the fact that God did command this to take place, and the the conquest is a is a matter of judgment Mm -hmm. and people died Mm -hmm. um and you know so even though i think we need to think about the context i don't think we should do so in a way that like explains away in a sense here god is a divine warrior i mean and he is dealing with injustice and evil some, you know, some of which, well, all of which really is being carried out by, you know, evil, evil people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, through the, through the conquest. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, obviously a hard thing, but I mean, in a, in a unique, it might seem hard for readers to think this now, but this is one of the blessings of going through and reading, being exposed to all of scripture. There's plenty of times I, I can remember, um, I've had conversations with people that are uh, not Christians and one of their biggest, you know, uh, one one of the biggest kind of beefs that they have with Christianity is this section of scripture. And I'm thankful that I at least 
had read through it. I mean, I, I, they were pulling things out left and right that I had not kind of faced, you know, uh, dealt with face to face. Right. Right. And, um, yeah, it certainly is a, a humbling time to read through this. And uh, I think it's a reminder that if, like, if we can completely understand how, how and why God does everything, then we're probably not worshiping God. Yeah. We're worshiping a version of God that makes sense to us and is crafted more in our image and would do things the way that we would do them. So when we come up to these parts of scripture, we're like, wow, that's, that's confusing. That's, I don't totally understand that. I'm not saying that that's, we should be like, oh yeah, great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But there is a part of that, that we should have some continuing awe and, yeah. and reverence and learning and and mystery or again we're just trying to explain things away to to craft the lord into yeah. into who we want him to be and, and who we are de- yeah someone that's easily understood yeah. and explained yeah totally but to your also to your point earlier like these are these are really important aspects of scripture to read and wrestle with because when you get into a conversation and someone says uh you know how is this different from modern day jihad mm-hmm. it well it's very different actually mm-hmm. um but you need to be prepared for that because if it catches you off guard you're like well what do you mean god never yeah brought about judgment through war well yeah. actually you know he did but let's look at what was going on there and look at why mm-hmm. you know so it, it's it's interesting too um yeah I just totally forgot what I was going to say. I looked well, down. That was, a, so that was an incredible thought. I, it was really good and really <laughs> profound. I could see it on your face. I know. It was awesome. I'm just, Honestly, the podcast probably couldn't handle it, so that's probably <laughs> why I, I didn't say that. Gosh. Wow. Uh, that's good stuff. Oh, what I was going to say, I remembered it. But get, get ready, listeners. It's just about to just blow. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it does put some contrast in of, you know, Although we don't use the language of conquest now as we go and make disciples, but it paints it, it puts a big contrast of how uh, we influence and reach the nations oh, yeah. uh, of those to in the New Testament. You totally. know? So some of that perspective ends up kind of coming back together to be seeing uh, the drastic change of ministry in the life of Jesus and how he interacts with non-believers. And obviously we'll get into that uh, much down the road. But to a point, to your point there, um, this is one of my kind of takeaways from Joshua is in chapter five. I love this. He he's he's Joshua's by Jericho. Uh, he says he like lifts his eyes up and there there's this guy standing before him with his sword yeah. drawn. And Joshua says, basically, are you for us? Or are you for them? And the this commander of the Lord's army army says, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. So it's basically like, are you on our side or are you on that side? And he basically says, no, I'm on the Lord's side. Hmm. Uh, and so it's that's a kind of what you were getting at before. Like when if we start to think this tribalistic, our side versus your side, well, no, the Lord has his own agenda. Mm-hmm. And our role is to get on God's agenda, not try to get God on our agenda mm-hmm. or our ways of trying to influence and, you know, get power mm-hmm. and, in you know, change a culture that way. Yeah. Um, it's more about like, what is God's strategy and how do we get on board with God's strategy? 
So just a good, it's like a cool picture of, well, no, I'm not on either of your sides. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, with that, uh, I think the application that I've been kind of wrestling with, and I'd be even kind of curious to hear your thoughts. I think sometimes Christians get pretty uncomfortable talking about the idea of blessing. Uh, or even prosperity, obviously, when we think about the prosperity gospel of put your faith in Jesus and all your uh, debt will get canceled mm-hmm. and, no and more things problems. like that. But there, there is a very extended passage uh, in Deuteronomy in this in this section that's talking about the the, the blessings for uh, obedience and the curses for disobedience. And you know, I don't know. I just I think uh, I I think that that warning that Moses is giving Israel before the promised land is uh, a refreshing reminder that we should always look to the Lord of, of how we should live our lives, yeah. you know, and we're not in it for the blessings, right? We're in it so that we know, we know God, mm-hmm. but in, in the nature to kind of show God's wisdom and how the world functions from time to time, there is a, uh, an establishing of our steps or even just a blessing from God because of, of, of obeying him. Um, and, and again, uh, not, not in a sense of uh, materialistic acquiring, but to me, I, just, I find that um, I'm so thankful that God spends time not only giving instruction of how people are blessed, but also just warning people about what happens when, uh, yeah, for, for disobedience. So, well, yeah, I think that's, I mean, classic Dan Estes uh, member of our church he's done a lot of studying and teaching in the wisdom literature we'll get mm-hmm. to that later uh, but he would say you know that's what proverbs is all about it's about blessing and warning and when you live in God's ways generally this is the way that you know life is going to work because life has been ordered by God now because we live in a sinful world, that's why the book of Job is in there, mm-hmm. to remind us that sometimes in a broken world, you seek God and you follow God and bad stuff happens. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's that tension, but you're right. I think sometimes we are afraid of blessing and thinking about living in these ways and knowing that God's blessing will be on our life. Now, mm-hmm. what that looks like. We don't know. Yeah, totally. Or we should not even count on, like you said with Job. So, Rev, I think it's time we uh, move to some questions. Is now when you play that song, but we don't <laughs> we don't hear it. <laughs> no, Only it, the hearers hear. Yeah, hear. That, that's right. Three, two, one. There you go. So the people who've uh, who've asked questions. Sorry that we haven't gotten back to answering some of them. That's it's Trent's fault. It is my fault. One of the issues is is we are slightly ahead in recording, and so sometimes we get emails just after we've recorded several in a row, and so we haven't gotten to uh, some of those questions. So I'm going to read some of them, and, and we can just talk about them. Uh, hello, as I've been reading Exodus and Leviticus, it's very apparent that God cared deeply about how and where the people approached him and interacted with him. 
and that he wanted to regard them as holy. And I know we're no longer under the law, but I would appreciate your thoughts on whether we've become too casual or flippant about how we enter and worship God uh, in our in, on our Sunday mornings. We're possibly focusing on our horizontal connections more than our vertical ones. How do we keep that right balance as we come together? That's, that's a great question. It is a great question. And I appreciate how you read the word hello as we started. And you know what's crazy? It's not even in there. <laughs> you just made that I up. I just made that up. <laughs> well, because it felt clunky for me just to say, ah, whatever. <laughs> that is a just, great question. Uh, I think one of the one of the uniquenesses here that this question addresses is have we become too casual or flippant about entering and worshiping him in our sanctuary? Sanctuary is really that language is Old Testament ish language. That's like temple mm-hmm. language. That's that's kind of getting at like when we come into this building, it's holy in and of itself. And so New Testament, really the the sanctuary is you and the me. People of God. People of God that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So I don't think necessarily the question, I don't think we've become too flippant as we've come into this room, but maybe I think probably, or yes, we have become too flippant as we come into God's presence, which just means when the gathered people of God come together. And that could look totally different ways. I mean, that could come in and totally neglecting looking at other people or talking to them or, you know, when when the word of God is being taught, just not not thinking about it or even listening to it, sleeping, sleeping. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly times that I I I think I oh I uh, see you sleeping what, regularly. <laughs> oh, all right, maybe we move to the second question. Uh, no, I, yeah, it's it's uh it's it's pretty convicting. And uh, honestly, coming after uh the after that period of time where we weren't gathering as a church in in COVID, you know. That was crazy that yeah. we were not able to gather as a church. And so there, there is something to be said about we should have a holy reverence and thankfulness uh, in our attitude as we gather together. And so. I think it's more really for me, I think the, the, the command is more about you know sincerity and, and reverence and kind of consciousness of God. Because some of the best ways that we can treat God as holy, like you said, is to love other people and to engage with other people. So it doesn't mean like, well, don't focus on other, on people, just focus on God. It's more like because we're focusing on God, we're focusing on people. But then when we pray, we're actually praying with the person who's praying. When we sing, we're actually thinking about these words that we're singing. Um, when we engage, like you said, when we engage with scripture, we're trying to, you know, be attentive and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, second question. Uh, what are the differences we should be aware of? Uh, let me start over. Question number two. Hello. What are the differences we should be aware of between uh, prayer during Moses' time and today? For example, Leviticus 26, verse 40 talks about confessing the sins of your forefathers. What's the point of confessing sins of our forefathers? And that's is that something we should be doing in prayer today? So w- one thing to kind of keep in mind, and honestly, I think at some point, Rev., we should spend a whole podcast talking about kind of the continuity between the old and new covenants and also the discontinuities between the old and new covenants. So as far as I know, I I don't, I don't think that's a command we see repeated throughout scripture, uh, throughout the new Testament, but 
I, I think there there's there's probably a kind of a personal ownership of a corporate prayer of Israel's heart towards God. It, yeah. It's kind of like a, it, I mean, in many ways, I mean, feel, would you say it's somewhat similar in how we pray a, a prayer of confession on Sunday morning from time to time that although maybe not uh, everybody has struggled with this particular area of sin, uh, we're, we're kind of generally confessing on behalf of the corporate body. Yeah, I think that's accurate. And I think the the place where we maybe miss some of this is not necessarily like confessing the sins of our forefathers, but oftentimes confessing the sin of the church in, in general, mm-hmm. not like Linworth per se, yeah. but we as your people have neglected yes. widows. We've yes. neglected areas of justice that are nearby. Right. Or right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think there is there is an individualistic nature of our minds that's very much me and God, which is important, the, the whole personal aspect of relationship with God. But we more miss the corporate. We 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 neglect even in our own spiritual life, we neglect how other people relate to us and um and and I think that would be reflected in our prayer as well. So while there's not a precedent, I don't think, for like confessing the sins of our forefathers, I do think that the crossover would be, like you said, more of the thinking about ourselves and even our prayer life more as a body and not just as individual people. So to make sure I'm hearing what you're saying, are you saying come to the prayer meeting on Wednesday nights? 7.15. Let's go. Come on. All right, question number three. Hello. Last week you mentioned that Moses had married a Cushite woman in Numbers 12, but previously he had married a Midianite woman named Zipporah in Exodus 2. Why did Moses have two wives? So now that you're no longer an apprentice, Mm. I'll let you handle this one. Ah, classic. All right. You know... Uh, it's unclear. Uh, I mean, one explanation that comes to mind is that there's very much so a, a possibility that Moses' first wife had died. There, there's, I mean, the, I don't see a reason why that couldn't be the case. The second option is that he did have two wives, and that's just because Scripture is describing something does not mean it is pre- prescribing uh, an, an area that would be against God's uh, will and written law elsewhere in scripture of having um, more than one wife. And obviously we're going to, if you've read any bit of the old Testament before where that's another area, we're, run gonna into have, that again. we're totally going to have to run into that again. So, but well, you only have one wife. That's right. Okay. I only have one wife. That's right. Uh, well, so next week finishing up Joshua and getting into the book of judges, man, you want to, you want to pray for, pray for our church fam and anyone listening? Absolutely. Father, thank you for the time to engage with your word and and to reflect on you and it a little bit today. Pray that you would build us up through your word, that we would meditate, that we would put to practice, that we would build our life on. We would experience the blessing of knowing you and loving you and being loved by you. Pray for our church family as well as we journey together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, bro.